The following lecture was delivered at the 8th Annual National Jewish Retreat, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture and encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Yossi Peltiel is a popular teacher and mentor with a gift for communicating his passion for Torah and Judaism. He currently lectures at the United Lubavitcher Yeshiva and the Machon Chana Women's Institute. A master of Hasidic thought, Peltiel's classes weave together Jewish law, history, and philosophy. The JLI course he conceived, the Kabbalah of You, was offered in 350 JLI chapters worldwide this past fall. He will now present a lecture entitled, The Systematic Beauty of the Jewish Calendar. It, it is quite well known in the circles of people who study Hasidism that there was a particular brand of Hasidus that was unusual and uh, many would say also extreme. It's, if you will, it's trademark, it's its core was an obsession with the truth, doing things only because they're true and doing them only truthfully and so forth. And for the faint of heart or the faint of mind or the faint of spirit, this kind of Hasidus could have become too much. This is called Kotsk, Hasidus of Kotsk. If you're at all a student of Hasidic history, you're familiar with Reb Mendel of Kotsk. He was a very unusual personality and he created a very unusual following. And there are many, many Hasidic groups who lay claim to be the, the descendants of Reb Mendel of Kotsk. Nevertheless, who he was and what he taught remains very unique. And his students were certainly one of a kind. He didn't have thousands of Hasidim. He had a handful of people who were loyal to him, who were his followers. And to be a follower of Reb Mendel of Kotsk required an unusual fortitude. You had to have a very, very tough disposition to put up with the constant, uh, I don't know what the right word is, the constant grinding away, the rubbing away at anything that was less than absolutely honest. And to be sure, that Mendel of Kotsk had a following of truly extraordinary people, many of whom went on themselves to become great Hasidic leaders in their own right. The framework of history is that Mendelkotsk passed away in 1864. So figure he was probably born around 1790 or something around then. Okay? Gives you a framework. So um, in terms of Hasidus, that's probably the fifth generation, beginning with the Baal Shem Tev. So the story is that one of his greatest disciples was a Jew by the name of Rablebel Eger. Rablebel of Eger. Rablebel Eger was a, a grandson of Rabakiva Eger. Rabakiva Eger was one of the greatest sages of that era. He was one of the few great, great rabbis who lived in Germany at that time. And Rabakiva Eger was a pious man, was a holy man and a great sage. Rabakiva Eger's son had a a terrible problem with Hasidus. He was a misnagid. He, he had huge issues with Hasidus. He disagreed with it. He objected to it and so on. And, um, you know, as it turns out, his son would turn out to be a Hasid. 
Rabbeleibel Eger was the son of Rabbi Shleim Eger. It was the son of Rabbi Kiv Eger. Don't worry about the details. You have to just get the punchline of the story. But nevertheless, these are the technical details. Rabbeleibel Eger's father was a big misnagid. His grandfather was a Jew who was really, really pious and holy. And he was above the whole struggle with Hasidim and Misnagdim. He was completely above it all. Anyway, the grandson becomes a Hasid. And the father was infuriated. My son became a Hasid. It was like the worst thing in the world. And the grandfather understood that if his grandson became a Hasid, Hasidus can't possibly be that bad. Because he knew his grandson, he had raised him, he had taught him Torah. He knew that if Rabbi became a chassid, then chassidim got to be religious Jews. You know, they believe in the Ten Commandments and so on. So the grandfather says to his son, they're all very religious people here, I am commanding you with the mitzvah of Kibbut Aim. I'm commanding you according to the commandment, honor thy father to host your son for Shabbos. The grandfather, Rabbi Kivega, says to his son, I'd like you to invite your son for Shabbos. If not for the fact that his father had told it to him, he wouldn't even tell him alone in the street. That's how estranged, that's how disappointed he was that he become a chassid. But when your father says, invite your son, host him for Shabbos, so without any choice, Rabbi Shleime Eger hosted Rabbi Leibel Eger for Shabbos. So Rabbi Leibel Eger writes his father a letter and says, I'm, I'm a bit surprised, but pleasantly so, that you're inviting me for Shabbos. He says, but I don't want to break your heart. If I spend one Shabbos in your home, I will, as upset as you are that I'm a chassid, you'll be even more upset. Let me come on a Wednesday. There's enough things, there's enough idiosyncrasies, there are enough issues to upset you about my lifestyle on a Wednesday. But if I spend a Shabbos with you, you're going to be so distraught, so disappointed, so broken. Let's do it on a Wednesday. So Rabbi Eger says to his son, I wouldn't even talk to you. I'm doing it only because my father instructed. And my father said, Shabbos is Shabbos. Fine. So Rabbi Eger spent a Shabbos with his father, Rabbi Eger. They come to shul on Friday night, like we all do. And what happens in shul Friday night? A rabbi makes a speech. You sing some songs, say, How long does the service take? I don't know, half an hour in a, in a, in a shul that's not in a rush. And you go home to eat. So the whole community gathers, and of course, the label Eger, he's a chosr of the Mendel of Kotsk, and this was a chassidist that everything had to be emis. It couldn't be anything that was done superficially, everything had to be genuine. He's in shul, he participates in the davening, he doesn't daven, mind you, he's present, he answers, Amen, he sings with everybody, I'm sure if they danced, he was very happy to dance along. When the shul cleared out, he began to get ready to daven, to say evening prayers to be Melkabal the Shabbos, to greet the Holy Shabbos. And he's pacing this empty shul, and he's saying to himself, how can I possibly raise myself to the level of Shabbos and bring the holiness of Shabbos into my heart and into my mind? To make a long story short, he finishes his evening prayers about four in the morning. A whole night, he's, he's bringing Shabbos into his heart. Now his father goes home from shul, and is expecting his son to come soon, and he's not showing up. So after a few minutes, he makes Kiddush, he washes, he breaks bread, he waits for his son. His son. The end of the story was, of course, the father finally got sick of waiting for his boy to come home from shul. He ate, he benched, he went to sleep. Four in the morning, Blabel Eger comes home, he finds some wine, some challah, he makes Kiddush, he eats some bread, he had some gefilte fish, that was fine for him. He lays down by six in the morning, he's out of the house, he's back in shul. And the same thing repeats itself. Davini takes him all day long. 
People come to shul, he's already meditating and pacing. And they finish davening, he's still meditating and pacing. There's a kiddush, everyone goes home, they eat lunch, they eat chalant, they take a nap, they come back to mincha. Sometime, when the sun is about to set, he's coming home to make kiddush, you understand, to eat his breakfast, Shabbos. And um, then he goes back to shul, daven, mincha, maidav. Shabbos ends like about 7 o'clock Sunday morning. 7 o'clock Sunday morning when people are getting ready to go play golf and eat lox and bagels, he's making havdolah. He's making the after service at the end of Shabbos. And of course, his father was very disappointed, he was very upset, and he says to his son, in fact, everything I thought of Hasidim has been realized in you. All that terrible um, disregard for a schedule and for honor and for time and for normalcy, you've thrown it all out the window. And the son says to the father, he says, Papa, I made it very clear to you that I thought it was a bad idea that I spent Shabbos with you. Because I knew this was going to happen. But you insisted. So I spent Shabbos with you. But how can I have a Shabbos if it's not a Shabbos? If I don't, in fact, bring myself into the world of the Shabbos, bring Shabbos into my heart, and that takes a lot of time. So the father says to the son, I don't understand. The rabbis who wrote the Talmud were also pious. And they were also righteous. What you knew, what you know, they also knew. And they put everything on a schedule. You go to shul, mincha takes a few minutes, have takes a few minutes, there's a few minutes in between, then you go home, you eat and you sleep. Then you get up in the morning and go to shul, you pray a little more, you eat and you sleep. That's <laughs> what Jews do on Shabbos. No day and no night. There's no Friday night. There's no Shabbos morning. There's no Shabbos afternoon. Friday night at four in the morning. Shabbos afternoon is when the sun is setting. Havdali you're making on Sunday. So the Blabel Eger told his father the following. He says, Tat in you. My holy father, my beloved father. He says, Gloib mich. Believe me. Ich din nish de zin and nish de levune. Ich din nor dem malein. He says, believe me, Father, I worship neither the sun nor the moon. I worship God and God alone. In other words, in my service, I don't look at the calendar, I don't look at the clock. I look to God. Ironically, our topic is the calendar. And I chose to begin this conversation with this story to give it context. The calendar is, is the basis for Jewish life, it's the basis for all life, for all existence, for all order. But a calendar must be appreciated as a framework. We have a calendar not to have a calendar. We have a calendar not to check days off and go through rituals. We have a calendar to create a framework in which we can serve God Almighty. And uh, for many of us, or for some of us on occasion, we become so obsessed with the calendar that keeping the calendar becomes more important than living it. And it's critical that we don't make that mistake, that we appreciate the point of all of the order in Judaism is to create framework, is to create pathways, streamlines, through which we can get beyond checking off days and counting hours and minutes to having a relationship with God Almighty having a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch. Now let me begin with the following. People who have studied history 
are aware that the lunar calendar is older than uh, the solar calendar. The lunar calendar means the, the counting of measuring of time by the moon. The solar calendar, of course, means the measurement of time by the sun. Measuring time by the moon to the ancient peoples was much simpler a task than measuring time by the sun for a simple reason, that the cycle of the moon was far more evident. It was much easier to see than it was to see the cycle of the sun. If you're a curious observer and you watch the moon night after night after night, you see it going from a banana to a piece of cantaloupe to becoming a full melon and then becoming a piece of cantaloupe again, then becoming a banana again. Over the course of 29 and a half days, you watch the moon cycle. So the ancient peoples obviously identify time, beyond the days of course, by moons. It was a very good measure of large units of time. Every 12 moons approximately is a year. All four seasons, winter, spring, summer, fall, is four, 12 moons. Now it's not exactly 12 moons, it's 12 moons and a third, which makes things very complicated. I'll get to that momentarily. The solar calendar doesn't have moons. There's no such thing as a solar month. The solar month is an arbitrary thing. A January, February, March, the division of our solar calendar into 12 months is entirely arbitrary. It's random. And there's no such thing as a lunar year. That's also random. A solar calendar means basically just as the moon cycles every 29 and a half days, the sun cycles every 365 and a quarter days. That's the cycle of the sun. But to be to live in a time when people didn't have pens and paper and to ascertain, to pay attention essentially to the lengthening of the days and the shortening of the days and the two days in the year when the day and the night are exactly equal and then the longest day of the year and then the shortest day of the year and to realize that there's a cycle that's repeating itself took much, much more smarts. So it's assumed from a historical perspective that the lunar calendar, the calendar that follows moons, is far older than the solar calendar. I mean, it's the calendar that follows suns. And it makes sense. It stands to reason. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that we believe God created man. We don't believe in the idea that man evolved from a primitive to an advanced state based on the science of anthropology that explains the evolution of society, humanity. We believe that God created man, made him intelligent, and gave him laws. If this is true, this is what we believe. We believe that God Almighty gave us a calendar. Now, we should all assume that God's pretty smart. God's the creator of the universe. He has a pretty good idea of what he made. He knows about the moon. He knows about the sun. He also knows about the... Um, the um, the seasons, the constellations, and the seasons, which are another system of measuring time. Why would God give us a lunar calendar? Why are Jews stuck in an ancient calendar? That's the fundamental question. The lunar calendar is an old calendar. And by the way, it's called lun for a reason. Right? I don't know which comes from which. Whether, by the way, the Russian word for the moon is loon. Right? There happens to be a bird that's called a loon. You know why? Because it, when it waddles around on land, it looks crazy. <laughs> There's a correlation between the moon and Meshuggah. It's not anything new. Um, lunatic and loon are not cousins. They're half-brothers. 
Why would the Jews hold on to a lunar calendar if it's an older model, presumably based on a lack of apprehension, a lack of fully comprehending what's transpiring in the, in, in the heavens, and that when people evolve, they get smarter and become more advanced, they discover that a far more accurate measure of time is a solar calendar, why would we still hold on to our lunar calendar? And of course the answer to that question is, not because we're stubborn and we love being old-fashioned, but because this is what God wanted. That means God Almighty, when He created the nation of Israel and He gave them the Torah, says, I would like you to keep time. But I don't want you, want you to keep time based only on the cycle of the sun. I'd like you to keep time based on a hybrid on a joining together of the cycle of the sun and the cycle of the moon. Our calendar is not a lunar calendar. It's not a solar calendar. It's a combination. Muslims keep a lunar calendar. Because Muslims keep a lunar calendar, their holidays don't have seasons. Every year, the Muslim calendar loses approximately 11 days to our calendar, to the solar calendar. Which means that every 36 of our calendar years, Muslims have 37 years. Think about it. If 11 days means about every three years, you accrue, you collect approximately 30 days. There are 12 months, 30 times 12 is 36. Every 36 of the solar, the, cal, the, the thir, 36 solar years is 37 lunar years. But not in the Jewish calendar. The Jewish calendar has 36 years in the, in the lunar calendar, even when there were 36 solar years. And the reason is, because our calendar is not strictly a lunar calendar. It's a joining, it's a hybrid of the lunar calendar and the solar calendar together. And the way this works out practically is, that every two or three years, we have an extra month. In the course of 19 years, we have seven leap years. A leap year is not an extra day, as it is in the solar calendar, it's literally... 30 additional days, an entire month. This, this following Hebrew year, the year 5774, has 13 months. And it creates almost a perfect balance, not exactly, but almost a perfect balance between the solar calendar and the lunar calendar. So the Jewish calendar is complicated. It's a hybrid of following moons, but keeping seasons. It's important to us that Passover always occur in the spring. It's important to us that Sukkot always be in the fall. And the only way to maintain seasons is by keeping the sun and the moon balanced. They'll never be perfectly balanced. They'll be balanced approximately, more or less. You can have Sukkot at the end of October. You can have Sukkot at the beginning of October. You can have Passover at the beginning of April. You can have Passover later in April. But it'll more or less be approximately at the same time of the year because our calendar fuses. It joins together the solar and lunar calendar to create... Uh, a complex order, a complicated um, method of keeping time and keeping holidays and keeping seasons. In other words, the solar calendar by itself, strictly, is very predictable. Okay, I'm not an expert on the calendar, but let's say, for example, March 21st is always spring. June 21st is always summer. That's not an arbitrary day. That's the way it is. It's, it's actually so. Because the calendar reflects the sun. 
The sun is the best clock we on earth have. It's the most available clock. It's the most constant clock. The sun will do the same thing year after year after year after year. Astronomers who are big, big experts will talk to you about this solar year getting infinitesimally smaller, you know, thousands of a second per year. But the solar year is a constant. It's always the same. The lunar year is very fluctuating. And God Almighty wishes to create a calendar that fuses the constant and the dynamic, the changing and the same. That's the design of our calendar, to bring those two models, those two ideas together. Now, another interesting idea. And that is that in the ancient world, going back 2,000 years and perhaps more, the way the months were determined was based on witnesses. Which means to say, every year, when it became the eve of Rosh Chodesh, the day before or approximately day when the new moon should appear in the sky, Jews looked for the moon. And if you saw the moon, you ran to Jerusalem. Because that's where it had to happen. It had to happen in the Holy Temple. And every month, people would gather, sometimes hundreds of people would gather, and the Sanhedrin, the highest court of the land, would take testimony. And to determine if people had in fact seen the moon, or they'd imagined seeing the moon, they saw mirages. And if witnesses came and testified that they saw the moon, the rabbis would get together in the afternoon, and they would announce, Mekudash, Mekudash, today is the first of the month. This is how it was done every month. Now what happens if it was cloudy, if it was overcast, if nobody came for whatever reason? So the rule was, a lunar month is either 29 days, not less, or 30 days, not more. Which means that if the witnesses didn't come on the 30th day, automatically the 31st was the first of the following month. And over the course of months, it would work itself out. If you had four or five months in a row that it was cloudy and nobody saw the moon, you would see the moon on the 26th or the 27th, and you come running to the head and say, I saw the moon on the 26th. They would, there was no such thing as a month with 26 days. They waited to the 29th. It would work itself out. And there were two things at play. The first was, people used to come as witnesses to testify they saw the moon, and this is how the new months were determined. Now the rabbis were smarter than this. They were great astronomers. They knew a lot about where the moon should be on a given day. And it's not very complicated to figure out when in Israel the new moon is going to appear in the sky. It's, there's simple mathematics that can determine what they call moilid. There, we know exactly how much time passes between one new moon and another new moon. It's 29 days and 12 hours and tofshin tzadik zayin chalakim. That would be 797 parts of 1080. Why that's the way it is, leave that for the mathematicians. But there's a very precise, you know, you know exactly when the new moon is going to appear in the sky. So the rabbis knew if someone was lying. Because if you saw the moon early, they knew it, you couldn't have seen it. But nevertheless, this was the program. The rabbis knew when the moon was going to appear in the sky. They didn't make a shchidish and the people came and testified. This is how it was done. Okay? Now there's a very intriguing piece of history that I want to share. <laughs> One of the things about being a teacher is that you get to share the information you choose. What I'm about to share is simply 
important to me. So you're going to have to listen to it, even if it's not very meaningful to you. <laughs> you may be aware that during the era of the Second Temple, which means 23 centuries ago, 24 centuries ago, the Jewish nation was split in two. There were Tzedukim and Prushim, Pharisees and Sadducees. And I hate to break it to you, <laughs> we're the Pharisees. I know that doesn't sound very good, but that's the fact. Um, and the division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was that the Pharisees accepted what we would call historically rabbinic Judaism, the influence of the rabbis. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they felt it had to be strictly biblical, although any person that ever studied Bible knows there's no such thing as biblical Judaism, that interpretation. But they felt it was much more subjective, it was much more fluid. And at the time of the Second Temple, the nation of Israel was split between Sadducees and Pharisees. And one of the areas of terrible, terrible division was the calendar. The Sadducees had their methods, the Pharisees had their methods, and it was very, very important to the rabbis then to keep the Jewish people united, unified. I mean, you know better than I probably, how many denominations of Christianity are there? There's hundreds. One of the most incredible things about Jewish history is that at the end of the day, we're more or less all the same. In the more modern era, we have reform and conservative, but until relatively recently, there was one kind of Jew, one kind of Judaism, we all have passed over the same day. Which is remarkable if you think about it, because historically there have been so many opportunities where the great sages debated when Rosh Hashanah should be, and it should have torn the Jewish nation asunder, and we should have drifted away, like you have the Eastern Church and the Western Church, they celebrate the most important day of their calendar on different days. December 25th or January 7th or 8th, I don't know, you probably know better than I, but why did it not happen in Judaism? Because the rabbis bent over backwards to keep a unified calendar. So there is a commentary from a, one of the great sages of old called Sadia God, who actually says something to me, it's incredible. We all understand that Jewish people kept the calendar by actually looking up in the sky and trying to find the moon. And when you found the new moon, you came dashing to Jerusalem and saying, I saw the moon. <laughs> I get to be the one to determine the new month. Sadiqan says something very unusual, and very few rabbis say what he says, but I think this is compelling. That Sadiqan holds that when Moses came down from heaven with the calendar, looking in the sky for the moon was never a part of the program. Absadiagon says that the original model of keeping a Jewish calendar was strictly based on the mathematical considerations, the astronomical tables, the likelihood of finding the moon at a particular time at a particular place. The whole business of actually looking up in the sky and looking for a moon and on that basis, determining the new month was a reaction to the Sadducees. The Sadducees felt, based on a literal reading of the biblical text, that you have to actually see the moon. So a new custom was introduced. That instead of simply having some rabbis sit with calendars and tables and figure out where the moon is going to be at a particular time, and determine when Rosh Chodesh should be based on all kinds of considerations. It was enacted in Jewish tradition that people should see the moon in the sky, run to Jerusalem and report, and it was done specifically to 
minimize, to diminish the possibility of dividing the Jewish nation into two nations. This is, to me, very, very compelling. I'll be very direct. Most rabbis disagree categorically with this Sadiqan. The, the, the accepted view is that since the time of Moses, people have been looking to the sky for the moon. But this is what he says, and I find it very interesting, worthwhile enough for me to share with you. Now, if you haven't noticed, no Jews are looking at the moon every month. It doesn't happen anymore. And there's a good reason why, it's a very complicated reason why. Let's just suffice to say that when, when the last of the Jews left the Holy Land, after the destruction of the second temple, the, the second temple was destroyed in the first century. Jews lived on in Israel for a couple of hundred years beyond that, well into the Roman uh, the nom- the domination of the Holy Land. But eventually Jews left Israel. And there wasn't a Jew left in the Holy Land. Now, the law is that the calendar must be fixed in Israel. The calendar must be fixed in Jerusalem. You can't sit in Brooklyn and make a calendar. You have to physically be in the Holy Land to make a calendar. So the last of the rabbis, before they left Israel, created a calendar for the length of our exile until Jews would be in a position to come back to the Holy Land and again look in the sky and try to find the moon and determine the new month and determine the years and so forth. So about 1900 years ago or 1800 years ago, a sage named Rabbi Hillel, not the familiar Hillel, another Rabbi Hillel, uh, fixed the calendar for the duration of our exile. So now you can sit in your living room and with very little effort, you can open up the proper page in the Shulchan Aruch and you can predict when Rosh Chodesh is going to be in the year uh, 2100. It's not complicated. It's, it's, there's a very, very simple order, uh, method how you can determine this. You can know every Rosh Chodesh backwards for hundreds of years, every Rosh Chodesh forward for hundreds of years. You can know every Rosh Hashanah when it's going to fall, which years are going to have a leap year. It's all been predetermined. So, this is reading A. Imagine that. I'm actually reading from the text. Rabban Gamliel had images of the phases of the moon on the wall-mounted tablet. The idea here is, this is one quote from the Talmud and Reish Hashanah. Uh, it is Talmud Chulin actually. Um, to indicate what I shared with you, that in ancient times, the, the, every single month the rabbis convened and had to determine when Reish Chodesh was. Every single year, the rabbis convened and determined, will this year have 12 months or will this year have 13 months? Will this year be what we call a regular year or will this year be a leap year? And every single month and every single year, the rabbis determined this. So the head of the Sanhedrin had pictures of the phases of the moon. If you came in as a witness, he'd take you up to these tablets and say, okay, now which one of these did you see? And if you didn't know what you were talking about, you would guess wrong. It was a very simple method of determining whether the witnesses actually saw the moon, where in the sky it was, and at what time of the day or night, and so forth and so on. In other words, the keeping of the calendar has a very, very practical, physical dimension. And that's a dimension of seeing the moon, reporting the sighting of the new moon, and then fixing a Rosh Chodesh. Every 12 months is a new year. Every second or third year, there was an additional month added and so forth. This is, if you will, an explanation 
of the calendar on a technical level, on a practical level. What we wish to explore at this point are deeper dimensions, higher dimensions, more spiritual, perhaps even mystical dimensions of understanding the nature of our calendar. I explained to you that our calendar is a joining of a solar and a lunar calendar. That's the design. It's not the solar calendar. It's not the lunar calendar. It's a combination of the two. And this combination creates, how do I say this? A pattern that's not perfect. A pattern that's not, what I mean by that is, holidays occur approximately the same time every year. But not exactly the same time every year. They can be a little bit earlier, a little bit later. There's all kinds of variations. The interplay of the sun and the moon makes everything fluctuating, everything dynamic, everything inexact. And at the same time, it's more or less predictable. That kind of an interplay. And I want to share with you one of the most famous Talmudic allusions to the calendar or to the beginning of the calendar, which is, of course, from a physical perspective, quite difficult to comprehend. But it's very, very important that we appreciate this, if not physically, at least philosophically. Let's do reading two. The moon said before the Holy One, blessed be He, Master of the universe, it is impossible for two kings to use one crown. He, that means God, said to her to the moon, go and diminish yourself. She said before him, Master of the universe, for saying fitting words before you, I should be diminished. When you read the biblical text, the impression that you get initially is that the sun and the moon were both of the same size. Or at the very least, that they provided the same amount of light for the earth. If the sun and the moon are like two stars revolving around our earth, there wouldn't be a night. There'd always be light in the sky. So the, when you read the biblical text, you read, God created two great luminaries. The idea is God created the sun and the moon both to be the same size, producing the same amount of light. Then it says in the next words, the great luminary and the smaller luminary. So the Talmud interprets this to mean that initially God created the sun and the moon equal, and then he diminished the moon. So that we have a day and a night. The Chazal tell us, our rabbis tell us that it was the moon's fault. The moon opened up his big mouth, or her big mouth as it were, and she complained to God, I don't want to share the sky with the sun. We're equal. Someone's got to dominate. Someone has to be dominant and the other one has to be submissive. And God says to the moon, great idea, you will be submissive. So the moon says to God Almighty, excuse me, I came up with a good plan, so don't punish me, punish him. Well, this is the story. Now, this exchange in the Gemara, in the Talmud, is very meaningful metaphysically, spiritually, and a, a little bit of a higher level. And the way I see it, philosophically, is that the diminishing of the moon represents the idea of creating imbalance, the opposite of balance. I, I, I actually went online today to look this up. In the physical universe, on the most basic level, on the level of, of, um, of the 
tiniest parts of the atoms, which are the earliest building blocks of creation, there is a terrible disparity. There is asymmetry. Things are not balanced. There is much, much more of one than of the other. And according to the physical laws, there should be balance. But you know what else? According to physical laws, if there was perfect balance, the universe would have destroyed itself moments after it was created. And one of the great mysteries of science is how come there is this incredible imbalance amongst the physical components of creation, but there is also an understanding that if there were a balance, there couldn't be a universe, there couldn't be galaxies, there couldn't be solar systems, there couldn't be stars, there couldn't be planets, there certainly couldn't be life. So there's something about imbalance. God creates balance and He sets it off. He, he unstabilizes it. He doesn't allow the sun and the moon to remain the same. One becomes big and the other becomes little. This imbalance allows for a world to exist. But you know what else? In addition to this imbalance allowing a world to exist, it also allows for imperfection to exist. In other words, think about this psychologically. What were to happen if we were all perfect? <laughs> what were to happen if we were all perfect? Huh? Would it be a better earth or a worse earth? Any opinions? <laughs> I'm sorry, I think we'd eat each other up alive. That's my personal take. But the, the inexactness, the imperfection creates the space for reality. The sun and the moon are balanced. God Almighty offsets that balance. By offsetting that balance, He's creating a world. But at the same time, the world He's creating is not perfect. Which is why, forgive me, let's read 1b and then 2 again. Okay, what does it say in 1b? The moon says before the Holy One, blessed be He, Master of the universe, it is impossible for two kings to use one crown. So He says to her, go and diminish yourself. The sun and the moon are the same size, there is symmetry, there is balance, that balance is unsustainable. God Almighty says to the moon, you become smaller. What does it say in reading 2? The Holy One, blessed be He, said, may this goat be an atonement for my having diminished the moon according to the Jewish tradition, not necessarily according to Jewish law, but according to Jewish tradition, every Rosh Chodesh we bring a sin offering. Every first of the month we bring a sin offering in the temple. For what sin? For the sin God committed by diminishing the moon. Now God can do whatever He wants. But that asymmetry, that lack of balance, creates in His world inexactitude, imperfection, which ultimately trickles down to us. But that inexactitude, that imperfection, at the same time, allows there to be a world. I, I think this is a very fascinating insight. And then we read reading three. What blessing should one make upon seeing the moon? Some of our rabbis say, Blessed is he, blessed is the one who renews the month. Some say, blessed is the one who sanctifies the month. And some say, blessed is the one who sanctifies Israel. The birth of the moon, which occurs once every month, the moon disappears from the sky because it's too far away from us to see. 
And when the moon is reborn, reborn, it's called a molad, a newborn, a new moon. It's a celebration. And for the record, incidentally, it's a holiday which is especially bestowed upon Jewish women for a variety of reasons. It's considered a positive thing. It's considered uh, spiritually, so to speak, the beginning of the correction of the inexactness, of the imbalance God introduced to the world when He created it. God created imbalance in His world, the meeting of the sun and the moon, the moon drawing from the sun's light, and delivering this light to the earth symbolizes, it means spiritually, the healing of this imbalance. That the moon also, which has been so diminished, can provide us with light. Of course, practically speaking, the moon will never provide us with as much light as the sun does. But the birth of the moon and the moon drawing from the sun's light and giving that light to the earth represents the idea God created an imbalance. By creating this imbalance, He allows for a world to exist. And now the world, once it exists, is healing itself. And the beginning of the healing process is the, is the birthing of the moon under Shredesh. And of course, one of the more interesting components associated with this is the Jewish people. The Jewish people are for, far more preoccupied with the moon than we are with the sun. For those who are not aware, once every 28 years, once every 28 years, which means twice, or if you're lucky, three times in a lifetime, there is a blessing that we make to God for the sun. 12 or 13 times a year, there is a blessing we make to God for the moon. So we're more, far more into the moon than we are into the sun. And the Jewish nation follows, in effect, to a great degree, a lunar calendar, and we're compared to the moon. There's a lot of things about the Jewish nation that are comparable to the moon, while other nations are compared to the sun. You want to make a comment? We did it in 2009. Now, how old are you? <laughs> For me, I did it the last time when I was 14, I think. And then I did it again when I was 14 plus 28. I guess that's 42. And the next time I do it, I'm going to be wearing dentures. <laughs> and I'll have grandchildren. I bought each one of my children. I had a, a baby that was three or four months old. I bought him one of these pamphlets. When he uses it, the next time he'll be 28 and a half years old. I, I just, I'm just fascinated by that concept, that idea. But that's one of the things we do. I saw another hand raised. No, it means that in certain instances, perfection cannot be without being preceded by imperfection. The way I see it is like a necessary evil. God does something He needs to do, even though it's not good. And there's a lot of that. Uh, this is true in, in everybody's life. There are many things we need to do that are not comfortable, but they're part of what we are. So God is saying, I needed to do this, and now I need to be corrected for it. I don't, I don't regret having done it. But it's still a setback. Let's read reading 4a, okay? Asaph counts according to the sun, which is larger. Jacob counts according to the moon, which is smaller. 
Just as the moon rolls, rules both by day and by night, so too does Jacob have a portion both in this world and in the world to come. Let's read 4b now, please. This month is to you, this is an allusion to the lunar part of the cycle of life, you count according to the month. The nations of the world do not. You have to be crazy to follow a lunar calendar. And I guess all Jews on some level are a little bit crazy. It's the, what these rabbinic quotes are saying in effect is that the Jewish people are distinctly likened to the moon. Now, I'm going to share with you three insights that I suppose are Jewish characteristics. They certainly are that way. In my opinion, these are discussed, of course, in Jewish thought, Jewish theology, and mysticism, that enlighten this. There are two methods of facing adversity. There are two ways to survive the challenges of life. One is to be hard and inflexible, and the other is to be soft and pliable. When you have a cedar, it stands firmly against the wind until the wind is too strong, and then it snaps and it's broken. When you have a reed, grass, straw, the wind doesn't destroy it, it simply flattens it, then when the wind subsides, he's back. The correlations, the similarity between the Jewish people and Jewish survival and the moon is obvious. We cycle. Jewish people cycle. We've had historically moments of incredible success, prominence. I would say that we're living in such a moment at this particular time in our history. Jewish people haven't had it, haven't had it this good for a very, very long time, as we have it today in America and in the West and in Israel, of course. Jewish people are in a very blessed condition at the moment. Just go back one century and it's unrecognizable. We cycle. In fact, the Talmud says, our rabbis tell us that if you count from Moses to the destruction of the first temple, it's exactly 30 generations. And King David and King Solomon are the middle two, 14 and 15. So they represent the fullness of the moon. We cycle. Jewish people peak and valley. We rise and fall. But what's unusual about the Jewish people is they're indestructible. They come back. They're reborn. They bounce back. And the, the bounce back ability of the Jewish people is measured in the diminishing moon. The diminishing moon is getting weaker and weaker and weaker. What we're doing is we're becoming soft. We're bending. And we bend in order to survive. And after we survive, we thrive again. Rather than take a position which is hard and fixed and determined, and when we bend, we break, we're very pliable, very flexible, and we always survive. I, I'm going to share something with you, and, and if, if you feel I'm insensitive when I say the following, I apologize. I don't mean in any way to be insensitive. I have a former student. Um, <laughs> I guess I could say her father is a neo-Nazi. He's a really angry man. She said to me that when she was a child, her father would sit her down and put on the Nuremberg trials and have her watch the Nazis sitting on those infamous benches. And he would say to her, you see these men? That's strength. This was the education, that's strength. This was the education he gave her. She became a Jew. And this is a very interesting story. And I'm engaged in a conversation with her, which is 
very sensitive, but also I think quite meaningful. She was raised that being human, and she's a woman, she's a girl, is to be tough and hard and unemotional. That's strength. I was raised, we are conditioned that there is far more strength in being soft and flexible. You bend, you come back. And the, the, the argument that we're having is, the two of us, I'm saying to her, you're a Jewish girl, a Jewish woman. And as such, you don't have to be so tough and so hard. Because you know what? It's very difficult to be tough and hard. It's very, very difficult to stay rock. And I keep telling her, you're Jewish. She says, but if I become mushy like you want me to become, I will be going against every principle I have in my core. And I think this idea, that the Jewish people are compared to the moon, and what that represents is, is very meaningful, and it does explain, in part, it does explain a little bit at least, the miracle of Jewish survival. Jews don't necessarily lack horns. Jews don't get principled about fighting. You know, it's not in the Jewish ethic to fight because you don't want to look like a coward. That's not Jewish. <laughs> it has to make sense. And if you have to look like a coward, you look like a coward. If you have to be a pacifist, you have to be a pacifist. It doesn't mean we're pacifists. It means that we have this flexibility. This correlating the Jewish people to the moon um, reflects these ideas. And that's what these Talmudic allusions are referring to that we're compared to the moon. Now look at ones 5 and 6. 5 says, A lunar eclipse is ominous for Israel, for Israel counts according to the moon. Now these are all uh, mystical ideas, or at least uh, metaphysical ideas. A lunar, an eclipse is seen as a bad omen. And I, I don't want to question the veracity of these ideas as they apply to the modern times. Let's leave those things for another time. The point is, when there's a compromise in the moon, it means a compromise in those who are linked to the symbol of the moon, which is the Jewish people. And finally, six, which is very interesting, why is Esther called Esther? Esther, who is in so many ways the symbol or the, the prototype, the archetype of Jewish survival. Who represents Jewish survival better than Esther? Because Esther, amongst other things, means the moon. There are actually three words for moon. Two are very familiar in Hebrew. Levana means the moon. Yareach also means the moon. And so does Sahar. For those who speak Hebrew, Samach also means the moon. And Esther had the name Esther because of the simile, the similarity between herself and the moon. That flexibility, that pliability, that plasticity, which creates uh, the capacity for survival. Now one final thing. What I've attempted to demonstrate in this hour is in addition to explaining the calendar somewhat, explaining the mysticism, the theology of the calendar. That it's a balance between constancy and change, between toughness and flexibility, where by being flexible you, you're reborn. The root of it is what the Talmud calls the diminishing of the moon. God at the moment, at the beginning of creation, had perfect balance and he affected an imbalance. They shouldn't be the same. One should be big and one should be little. In creating this imbalance, the sun is dominant, obviously, and the moon is subservient, obviously, that's so plain. Well, mysticism says that this subservience of the moon will result one day in the moon 
being greater than the sun. The diminishing of the moon, which as we said earlier, the Talmud says God brings a sin offering for having compromised the moon. The creation of the imbalance, or the imperfection in God's world, allows that ultimately the cycle should go so completely that the, the diminution, the negative, which created the imbalance, that allowed the world to exist, will actually place the moon on a pedestal above the sun. In other words, this means that sometimes being smaller is actually bigger than being large. The moon is receiving everything it receives from the sun. And mystically and philosophically, look at, I could read, and these are quotes from the Zohar. The moon has no light of her own, she shines only when she is joined by the sun. Darkness is the feminine, the moon is compared to the feminine, and Jews as a, as a rule are feminine, God is masculine, which receives from light, which is a masculine energy as the moon receives from the sun. Just as the moon, I'm reading nine now, just as the moon borrows from the sun and has no brightness other than the sun gives her, so too the Shekhinah says, borrow on my account and I will repay. The, the diminution of the moon makes the moon dependent. But there's a certain additional quality. And this additional quality is the quality of humility. In order to permit yourself to be dependent, you have to accept dependency. You have to accept, I need something outside of myself. Many a person will view that as weakness. The admission that I'm not self-sufficient, the admission that I cannot take care of myself, I need something other than me to provide for me, to fulfill me, to complete me, and so forth, is a, a symptom of weakness. But in reality... There is nothing more courageous than to admit I need something outside of myself. It takes incredible psychological health to say I am not whole by myself. The moon symbolizes, in addition to all the diminishing aspects, the idea of the humility of the, the idea that someone is able to admit I need something outside of myself. And mysticism argues that you are never closer to your own truth. You're never closer to the inner self than when you're humble. You're more in touch with yourself when you stop trying to be and play God. When you allow yourself to be small and dependent. And the Zohar discusses, and this is developed later on in, in mystical and Hasidic thought, that ultimately the humility, which is the, so to speak, the upside, the gain from the diminution of the moon, will become celebratory. The moon is going to show itself to be greater than the sun because the sun tries to make the impression, I'm God. And the sun isn't God. It's a creation of God like anything else. The moon acknowledges, I need something outside of myself. And in that admission the moon is much closer to God than the sun is. And I think, if you will, if I may conclude with a practical lesson from this entire discourse, from this entire conversation, permit me to share this. There are different types of people. 
Some people love consistency. They love sameness. Every day, everything should be the same. They come to the bathroom and the toothbrush is in the wrong hole in the toothpaste, the toothbrush dispenser above their sink and they have a bad day. And the toothpaste has to be where they left it yesterday and so forth. That's, I guess, excessive, but you get the point. Some people can never do the same thing twice. They're constantly fluctuating. Neither of these conditions is healthy. Being obsessively constant is a prison. Being constantly creative and going beyond yourself is not living. It's like spending your life on a cliff, on, 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 a, on, a, on a sheer wall. There's no plateau, there's no stability. Healthy life is an interplay between balance and constancy and growth. Our calendar symbolizes, represents, it teaches. We do the same things again and again and again, but they're slightly different. And in our lives, this is very, very real. To live, you need a home, the same address. I lived there yesterday, I lived there today, I'm going to live there tomorrow. Moving is very stressful. We need constancy. And within the framework of that constantly, there's measured growth, which makes us, on the one hand, alive, and on the other hand, stable and balanced. Okay. Um, I'll see you tomorrow in mid-session. Yeah. <laughs>